Hi, my name is Andrea Bumstead and I am a member at Restore Temecula. If you are new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe the church is not an event, but a family that you belong to. So we would love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help in any way, please visit our website at www.RestoreTemecula.com and click on Contact. We also have a mobile app with resources, including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on the Apple or Android App Store. With all of that said, we hope you enjoy the message. There we go. Good morning. My name is Eric. Hey guys. Uh, I'm one of the elders here. And uh, again, Tom is in Denver, sends his love uh, with, Den- with Anthem Denver. Uh, if, you, if you guys are new, Anthem Denver is actually a church that we, as a family of churches, we helped to raise about $40,000 for them so that they could uh, continue to be a church in Denver, Colorado, that's sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and creating context where people can experience him and grow in him. So we love Denver. Josh, uh, Josh Lewis is the lead pastor there. He was here a few weeks ago with us. And he shared, and I thought it was a wonderful Sunday, so now Tom is doing the same thing out there. Uh, So with that said, we're going to go ahead and kick off this morning. We are in a series called Priesthood. Uh, If you're new, we really have felt, uh, as as an elder team, led to refocus, like recapture, really like restore our priestly identity. I think God, that's something that God wants to do uh, in us and through us. And priests are people that quite simply have reoriented their lives around ministering to God, around blessing God. And so we have been in a series probably for the last, I don't know, the better part of two or three months, something like that, just looking at different elements of what it means to be a priest, of what it looks like for us to be priests to God who reorient life around ministering to Him. And so today, uh, I really felt, I spent some time this week this is, this is part of the challenge of a series like this. We're not, if you've been with us for a while, we, we've gone through uh, kind of text by text, verse by verse through, for example, Matthew, or we did a, a long time in John. We've done time in different books of the Bible. This one is, is more of like the theme of priesthood. And so when, there's so much, uh, so much in the scriptures about the priesthood. It's been really stunning to me, actually. I've actually reread certain books of the Bible, now thinking about it from the lens of priesthood, and they've just started to pop in ways that they hadn't before. And so to focus in on one thing to share is very, very difficult. I think actually last time I, I said, just kind of jokingly, it was up here, I was like, I could preach a series on this. So each of these messages really could be like a series of messages, but I'm going to try to do it in 30, 35 minutes. We're going to talk about today a very important aspect of the priesthood that I've actually shared a little bit on, but we're going to go deeper this morning. And so I want to invite you, before we dive in, I want to invite you to pray with me that God would empower me and he would give us ears to hear what he has to say. So Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word and ultimately like through your son. Thank you for revealing what you're like uh, through him. And I thank you that we have much to learn and that that's okay. It's okay. We're disciples. We're learners. And so I pray that this morning that you would give us an opportunity to learn from your son, that you would give us eyes to see him, ears to hear him, hearts that desire to follow him, 
uh, feet that, that want to walk in the narrow way that he has set before us. And ultimately lives that are, as the priest, priesthood indicates, lives that are offered up to you. Lives that, that belong to you. Lives that are yours. God, thank you for that. For that you would help me and that you would speak to us through your word. We thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay. When I was in the fourth grade, I had this um, kind of, I had a day that wasn't, wasn't a great day. Uh, I don't remember a lot about fourth grade. I remember like just the two or three things from it. But one of the things that I do remember is uh, Grandparents Day. I don't know if, is that still a thing? Do they do that at schools anymore? I don't think so. Okay, cool. Um, I'm glad <laughs> in a sense. Not because I don't love grandparents. I love you, abuelo and abuela. Um, it's just that when your grandparents aren't there, it kind of sticks, you know? Uh, so here I am in fourth grade. Uh, in third grade, I had moved, my family had, had relocated from Puerto Rico to here, to Southern California, and specifically South Orange County. And by fourth grade, we're kind of like in the rhythms of life here and kind of getting more settled. But the, the grandparents' day experience in fourth grade is, for whatever reason, it just has stuck with me. And what it was, was like a day where people brought their grandparents to school, and so they had like a little special like luncheon and different kind of activities set up so that you can enjoy, enjoy that day with your grandparents. Only problem is, if your grandparents aren't there, it could be very, very painful. It can be kind of rough. And so for me, my grandparents, uh, they, were in, they were in Puerto Rico because my, my mom and dad had moved uh, our family here. My brothers and myself, there was five of us, we moved here, but the rest of our family didn't necessarily move with us. And so Grandparents' Day, I remember sitting on the wall of, I went to the mission, mission school, Salmon Capistrano, uh, anybody familiar with that? It's fairly well known, the Salmon yeah. Capistrano, or the Swallows of Capistrano. <laughs> that's, a, that's a dumb and dumber reference for those of you who, I'll just start the timer now. Maybe we can start the audio now. So the Swallows of Capistrano, a very famous place, and there was actually a little uh, grade school that was there, a K to eight, and that's where I went and did kind of grade school, San Juan Capistrano. And that day, I remember while the, like, the grandparents' day stuff is going on, I was sitting on the wall. Don't ask me why I was sitting on the wall. I think that's the worst place you can be, is just kind of watching other people and sitting by yourself on a wall. It was just, it was miserable. And here's... For whatever reason, that's been coming up this week as I've been thinking about this message specifically. And I think part of it is, as I've, as I've reflected on it, it's that the family and the place that gave me a sense of identity was far from me at that point. Uh, so there was a sense of loss and isolation from the community of love that I was born into. And there was distance from my true home. Why do I mention this? Well, I think it's actually, it's not far from what the scriptures describe as the human condition. If you've ever read the scriptures, especially if you've ever read starting in Genesis, uh, you'll, you're going to find an, a really fascinating story. It's, it's complex, it's multi-layered, but it's ultimately very simple. Uh, humanity is alienated from God, far from God. If you read the story, it starts off with this beautiful garden. What's well, creation and this beautiful garden, which is a place where God and humans dwell together. It's actually a place where, where it's in a sense, like heaven and earth are one. The realm of God, the rule of God is here on earth, and humans are, are there. 
Adam and Eve are there. And what ends up happening is the people are given a, a really important priestly role. Now, if you read the text, you're not going to see the words priest in there. But it becomes the, the Old Testament, it's, it's meditation literature. So the idea there is that you read it over and over and over again, and things that aren't clear at first become clear as you keep reading it. Make sense? It's sort of like watching a movie where you're like, you miss a lot of stuff. The Sixth Sense, anybody seen that one? M. Night Shyamalan? He really peaked, didn't he? But, um, you know, it's sort of like you watch it the first time, you have no idea that this child, or that this, uh, this adult, Bruce Willis's character, should I ruin it? I guess like, whatever, it's been 20, it's been out for 30 years. Bruce Willis is actually dead. And you didn't know it, but then you rewatch the movie, you're like, oh my gosh, it totally makes sense. Bruce Willis is dead in that movie. And the little boy sees dead, I see dead people. You remember that? Yeah. Okay, great. This is, this is going terrific, swimmingly. <laughs> so ancient uh, Jewish, this is a Jewish meditation literature that becomes clear as you keep reading it. Almost like a movie that makes more sense as you keep watching it. But what you have is you have Adam and Eve in this garden, and they're there to protect it, to keep it, to take care of it. And what ends up happening is, and, they, and they're there, they're blessing God, they're ministering to him, they're, they're extending God's rule and reign uh, with him, but something happens. A snake shows up, this, this creature, this lying creature shows up and tells a lie, or half-truths, essentially, and Adam and, Adam and Eve agree with the serpent, and then it leads to this terrible fall. The Lord God had, had commanded them to, to listen to his voice, and instead they listened to the voice of, of Satan, the enemy. And so Genesis 3, chapter 3, verse 24, I think we've got that one, is a very important uh, reflection on this. So once Adam and Eve sin, they fall. Sin is like falling short. They fall short. They don't listen to God. Here's what ends up happening to them. They're in this garden. And it says, verse 24 says, he drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the Tree of Life. You've never heard that before. They might be like, oh, this is weird. He, like God, drove the man and the woman out. Okay? What was once uh, intimacy, closeness, partnership, a community of love becomes distance as they are exiled. They're sent out of the garden. You could throw up image number one. This is a, I didn't draw that. This was actually in a book, very good book. I realize now as I'm looking at it, like, oh, this could, be, could have been like a third grader uh, who drew this. But the, the visual representation is really helpful. This is the garden, a visual representation of the garden. So what you have is you have God's place. You have the tree of life as represents like him, like living according to his knowledge and his wisdom represents that partnership with humanity. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's what Adam and Eve eat from. They eat from that one tree that they weren't supposed to. And so because of that rebellion, that fall, they were sent out of the garden, expulsion, exile, eastward. And then God puts these cherubim and a flaming sword, which sounds pretty intense, but basically it's sort of like you come through here, you, you die if you try to get back in. So there's an eastward movement out of the garden. However, 
So it's tragic. Basically, my, it's a long way of saying the start of the Bible is actually like a tragedy. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it rings true. So many of our stories, if, if you think about them, are marked by tragedy. Uh, whether, it, doesn't, it almost doesn't matter who you are. All of us have experienced significant losses. All of us have experienced significant pain. All of us have experienced brokenness in this world that are, that's tragic. And so the reality is humanity is sent out of the garden. And in a lot of ways, they've lost their vital connection to the God who gives them meaning in life. Right? They're sort of like a child sitting on a wall. Like feeling isolated and alienated from home. And we experience that in a bunch of different ways. I don't think I have to get too much into it. But I think all of us know like that kind of profound sense of disorientation that comes with just being human. None of us are completely at ease and like, no, this is all great. This is all good. Life is amazing. Uh, That's not reality. Is actually the reality is we feel displaced. Oftentimes, we don't even know what it is. It's just a general feeling of unease, a general feeling of like, I don't know where I belong or who I belong to or why I'm here or what the point of any of this is. And obviously, when it's taken uh, pretty far, it could lead to fairly tragic uh, consequences for someone who loses sight of why they're here. But here's the, here's the reality of the biblical story. Even though God sent people out, do you know what his heart is? It's, it's to be with people. It's actually to be with people. Exodus 25.8. Exodus 25.8 is really telling. This is, this is God talking to Moses, and if you don't know the story, God raises up Moses because God makes a promise to have a people in this world, who are going to be his image bearers, who are going to basically restart this Eden project. And it's Israel. And so God saves Israel. They go into slavery in Egypt. God rescues them. It's sort of like they're, that's how they come to be the people of God in a lot of ways, is God rescues them. He makes a promise to, to for, he makes a promise to Abraham, you're going to have a people in a place. The people end up out of their place and in slavery. God rescues them. But before they go back into the land, before they go into the land that God promised them, they're not, they're not there yet. So what God says is, they are to make a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. This is the mobile, a mobile temple, a sanctuary, a tabernacle. And the point of that tabernacle is, I want to be with people. I want to be with my people. I want to dwell with them. And Exodus 25, 40, just later on this chapter, God tells Moses, be careful to make this sanctuary, all of this according to the pattern that you have been shown on the mountain. So Moses meets with God on the mountain. He gives him this vision. And Moses and the people of God work together to enact this vision of a place where God can dwell among them. Now, if you read this story, there's a lot of twists and turns and ups and downs. But here's the big idea. What do you suppose happens when a holy God tries to, or desires to live with an unholy people. There's problems, right? There's a lot of problems. Uh, and, and one of the ways that we know that is because all throughout, all throughout this, this story, and I'm covering, I'm like summarizing several books of the Bible as I'm going, so I'm covering a lot of ground. But basically what ends up happening is God wants to dwell with his people, but people are sinful. 
And so what the point of this message today is to look at the idea of sacrifice. God provides what's called a sacrifice. When you think of sacrifice, what do you typically think of? And you guys can shout out. Um, A a man? A lamb. lamb. Cool. A lamb. Yes. What else? Think uh, think bigger picture. Think like... Dying to self, yeah. Cool. Do you think of any people specifically? Abraham. Jesus. I was actually thinking like military soldiers. Uh, we, could, we could totally go there though. Yeah, Jesus. Totally. I guess in my mind it was sort of like, think of the, what, what does the culture think about sacrifice? Uh, typically, you know, like we're about to step into May. May is the month of Memorial Day. Like, we remember the sacrifices that people have made serving this country, right? That's, I think, kind of like the quintessential idea of sacrifice that people have in in their minds. But the sacrifice that I'm talking about is similar, but it's also different. There's a word that's really important in the Bible. You've probably heard it if you've been in the scriptures, if you've read through the scriptures, um, but maybe, maybe you haven't. It's called atonement. It's called atonement. And that word, one of the ways that it's described is kind of when you have atonement, you have at one mint. Have you guys heard that before? What's that? You never heard it before? Oh, great. I can't tell if that's sarcasm or if that's real. Oh, great. Yeah. So at one mint. <laughs> Can we throw up the picture, the image number one again? Okay. So what happened here when God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden is that What's lacking is being at one with God. There is not, God and people are not together. They're actually separated. There's exile, there's distance, right? And so what atonement, the idea behind atonement is that people and God can be made one again because there's, a, there's distance that's formed. Um, it's, it's kind of like when, when I was describing that situation of when I was a kid and my grandparents are in Puerto Rico and I'm in California, there's distance, right, that needs to be covered. There's something that needs to change in order for there to be union again, in order for there to be oneness. And in my case, it was them getting on an airplane to fly over here. Um, and that's, you know, that's thankfully in our, the world that we live in, that's not that hard or difficult or crazy. But when you have a holy God with an unholy people, there's a bigger distance to cover. Uh, it's serious. And so what we get is the practice of sacrifices of atonement as we're reading through the scriptures. This is God's answer. Now, I think it's important just to mention that oftentimes when we hear about animal sacrifices, which is what we're going to talk about, it can, it can conjure up a lot. Uh, what do you, when you hear animal sacrifices, what do you think people typically think of? And we can go broader here, like culturally. Cult? Okay, sounds like a cult, Right? What else? Fire. Fire, yes. Fire is definitely a part of it. It's kind of weird, right? For some people, especially depending on where you live, it can feel like, oh, what are you doing to these animals? Like, what do these animals do? It feels kind of unfair that animals would have to be sacrificed uh, in order. How does that affect our relationship with God? That doesn't really make a lot of sense to us uh, Westerners, typically. It made a lot more sense to them back then. But here's ultimately what's going on. I think this is absolutely fascinating. It's been fascinating to me as I've thought about this and chewed on it. The animal is a representative. So there's this really interesting, uh, I guess, ritual, you could call it, where they would place their hands on the animal. Maybe you've heard about this. 
And sometimes there's like a transfer that's taking place where before you sacrifice this animal, you put your hands on it and there's like a transfer of guilt or sin onto the animal. Most of us, if you've been in the church for a while, you've heard of that part of the story, right? So there's this guilt offering or this sin offering. You put your hands on the animal. The animal then receives essentially that guilt or that sin on itself and then it's sent off into the wilderness. A lot of us are familiar with that if you're not that's a part of the Day of Atonement, where we become at one with God. But there's a whole other part of this that I think is absolutely fascinating. When the people put their hands on the animal, what they were doing, not just, there's not just a transference happening, but they're saying, this is my representative. This lamb or whatever, this animal now represents me. And so, in other words... When there's a fire, I think it was Caroline that mentioned it, there's a fire, right, with respect to sacrifices. When that animal is burnt up and the smoke rises, it's like I am being, I'm, I'm dying. I'm, give, I'm giving my life to you, God, as a sacrifice. And so when that smoke, that, they call it a burnt offering or an ascension offering, when that smoke rises up to God, that's like, a, that's like me saying, my life is rising up to you. You guys ever heard that one? This is a different side of the atonement, huh? This is a different part of being, of, of offering, of, of, of a sacrifice. There's an identification that I make with that animal when I put my hands on it, or when, the, when the priest puts their hands on it to say, this is us, a sacrifice to you. A sacrifice to you. Now, this is different. Oftentimes, what we think of, we typically think of my guilt on this offering. But how about my life? You guys ever thought about that? How do you reconcile Jesus dying for us and then him saying, You got to give up everything to follow me? How do you reconcile like Jesus giving himself for us and then him saying, Take up your cross and follow me? It's because to come to Jesus isn't just to receive the forgiveness of sins, it is, but it's also to say, my life is now your life. I give my life as an offering to you. It's really important. Can you throw up quote number, actually wait, not yet, not yet. But here's the problem with that. Who here honestly honestly desires to give your life as an offering to God by nature? Nobody. Nobody does. Uh, I remember when I was a, a fairly, I don't even think I was following Jesus yet, but I remember there were these guys on my floor when I was in college, and they were there because they wanted to tell other kids about Jesus. And when they started talking to me about Jesus, they talked to me about his forgiveness, but also about this element of him saying, take up your cross and follow me. So they were pretty explicit of like, hey, Jesus' death is for you, but also you die too with him. That was the part that kept me from coming to Jesus for years. As I've thought about my life, there's a reason why it took me five years to become a follower of Jesus, because I did not want to become a burnt offering. I did not want to, I didn't want to, give him everything as an offering 
And I was, wasn't ready to make that sacrifice. I wasn't. And so for about, for the better part of five years, from the time I was 18 to when I was almost 23, I kind of kept Jesus at distance. I'd get close to him sometimes or be around like the church, and then I would pull back hard. And so it was just like this constant back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Eventually, I just kind of pulled away entirely because I just couldn't handle the tension anymore. I just couldn't handle it. Um, what ended up happening to me was that I, I had a profound realization when I was 22. Um, if you go back to the analogy that I was, uh, the picture that I was kind of painting of me like on the wall, just kind of alienated from the community of love, do you know what I used to do on that wall when I was a kid? Uh, outside of Grandparents' Day, I used to sit the dictionary and read it sometimes. Pretty lame, yes. It's impressive, okay. The reason I did that was because I was looking, I appreciate that, Ab, you're very encouraging. The reason I did that is because I was trying to deal with my profound sense of alienation in this world through knowledge. Knowledge became my way of trying to feel like I belong. If I knew what the dictionary said or the encyclopedia said and somebody had a question, I could answer it, then I felt like, oh, I'm worth something. I'm worth something. That was my particular coping mechanism with the profound alienation I sensed from God. I didn't know it was from God. I didn't know that. I know that now. I thought it was just, I need people. There's a sense, there's a reality to that. That's true. But my alienation was first and foremost from him. And I tried to fill it in all these different ways. And I think that's a part of the human story. In this room, all of us, just by nature of you being here, breathing, if, you're, if you hear my voice, you have your own way of trying to cover over that sense of I'm not the way I should be. There is something wrong. Some, things are not right. That sense of innate shame that we carry. Do you know where we got that from? From Adam and Eve. What happens when they sin and God says, where are you? What's happening around that time? Does anybody remember? What are they doing? They're, they're doing two things. They cover themselves and they hide. How do you hide? How do you cover yourself? The more I learn about me, which isn't the f- most fun thing, by the way, um, it's like blood work at the doctor. Yep, somebody's laughing because they get it. It is. It's like, it's like the, the understanding and self-awareness isn't fun. However, if you don't know, you can't do anything about it, right? If you don't know what's wrong, you can't actually come up with a plan. With that said, my self-awareness over the years has grown where I've realized like, the way that I try to make myself feel okay, the way that I try to cover myself is through knowledge. That's why it's sort of ironic that Part of my calling in life is to do this because I'm often at a loss for words. Could you imagine doing this, like opening up a scripture and sharing what it means and trying to get 100 people to make sense of it? It's, it's really hard. I'm not saying this for pity. I'm just telling you, like, God has a sense of humor because I've come to the end of knowledge 
And if it's just something that I can give you, then it's not a sacrifice. I'm just giving you my knowledge. I don't want to do that. Now, going back to what I was talking about earlier, I think all of us have these ways of trying to cover ourselves. You probably know what it is. If you don't know, if you're married, ask your spouse. Ask your mom or your dad if you have parents. Ask God. But we all have got these different ways that we try to cover. Some of us do it through uh, performance. Some of us do it through... Some of it, I, know, I know people whose family becomes their cover. I know people whose job becomes their cover. I know people whose who entertainment becomes their cover. I know people who money becomes their cover. I know people, because, and I say this because I know people. Because <laughs> we're people. And now here's the, the profound reality. We can never show up to the Garden of Eden, to these cherubim with flaming swords, and I'm speaking metaphorically here, and bring God our performance. We can never bring him our family pedigree. We can never bring him our bank account. That's why there's millionaires who take their lives. There's people who have everything that seem to have nothing. They're empty inside. That's why I believe this is a dangerous place to live because we have everything. But we might be bankrupt, spiritually speaking, and not know it because we're comfortable. Here's the crazy good news. Can you throw up quote number one? The sacrifice teaches us something. Atonement, along with the elements of purification and ransom, which I'll explain in a second, is that which enables the return to Yahweh God, a reversal of Eden's expulsion. Okay, a lot of big words there. Two words in particular that have really hit me are purification and ransom. I think um, sin, that original cause of our separation from God, of our alienation from God, ultimately it, it accrues two things, debt and defilement. Debt and defilement. Uh, let's say that, okay, yesterday Heather and I, we were driving uh, back home, spent some time with my folks. We were driving back home and we were in Crown Hill. And there's an intersection there. It's like Crown Hill and something else. Royal Crest. So I'm sitting there at the stop sign. It's a four-way stop. Some of you live in Crown Hill. You know what stop I'm talking about. And I'm sitting there with my wife next to me, Heather, my daughter, Ellie, behind me, and then our two kids over here. And I look up, because I'm ready. You know, it's a four-way intersection. I'm ready to cross. I look up, and I look over. And there is this car that doesn't stop at all. So it's like, here's the stop sign. There's a stop sign here. And it just goes like this. Now, if you've never been in a situation like that, what could have happened if I hadn't like, looked over, paused, and not crossed? If I had entered into the intersection, that would have been a T-bone. And if you don't know what it's like to get T-boned, it hasn't happened to me, but it has happened to a friend of mine. And my, my friend Mike, when we were kids, this was eighth grade, on my surprise, like 14th birthday, uh, the only person that never showed was Mike because he got T-boned. 
his, the car that he was in got T-boned on the way to my party. Thankfully, he wasn't wearing a seatbelt, and instead of getting crushed, he got ejected from his seat. And I always thought it was ridiculous that Mike never wore a seatbelt, so I was like, this isn't Kansas, man. Like, this isn't like a, I don't know. Sorry, if you're from Kansas, <laughs> take Kansas out of the equation. This isn't like a, a small town in eastern Oregon where there's one stop sign. This is Southern California, bro. Like, wear a seatbelt. You could get hit. But that actually saved his life. <laughs> when he got hit, the fact that he wasn't strapped in actually saved him. Um, but he didn't make it to my party. Thankfully, he was okay. He just spent some time at the hospital. Now, why do I mention all of this stuff? I think sometimes we don't know how serious our situation is. Uh, if I hadn't stopped and looked at that car... I would have known how serious it was because I wouldn't be here. Not that I would have died necessarily, but I wouldn't have been well enough to preach. Things would have been really, really bad. Now, what the atonement does, if we can throw that quote number one back up there, what the atonement was, does, it's, it's two things. One, it tells us, like, this is really serious. This alienation from God is extraordinarily serious. In fact, it's death. To be outside the garden is to be in the realm of death. But the good news is there's purification and ransom for us. But by purification, there's a sin debt. Okay, if that car had hit me, do you know what we would have, we would have had? We would have had a situation where Heather and I at best had damages to our car. And Chris, what do you do when there's damages to recover? You hire a lawyer, right. You can recover damages. Oftentimes when you have a lawsuit, uh, you know, depending on what it is, you're trying to recover damages. Uh, sin incurs damages. Sin incurs damages. And so that word right there for ransom is really important because it means that, that those damages are paid and not by you, but by the sacrifice. The sacrifice pays the damages. So sin incurred a debt and God himself offers the sacrifice to pay for your damages. Is this good news to anybody? Yes. It should be. Because <laughs> if, you, if you know how close you are to death, that would be like the best news ever. There's a, there's a release of the sin debt. In other words, you could say that our sin debt is canceled through a sacrifice. But there's more. I want you to imagine if Heather and I had actually got into the intersection and we had been hit. What do you think the impact that would be on our lives? If we, let's assume everyone survived. Would we be the same? No. We would have not only the damages of like, the, the destruction of property to recover, but there would be the ongoing effects of trauma. We'd be thinking about that every time we go through an intersection. Am I right? For a long time, we would be impacted, probably potentially for the rest of our lives. So there is a defilement that comes with sin. There's an ongoing effect that comes with sin. I'm not saying that it's a metaphor. The guy running the, I guess, I guess running through a stop sign is a, it's a violation. Like, you, whatever. Not necessarily sinful. My guess is he was probably just looking at his, I actually don't know what happened. I have no idea. But sin, in and of itself, it does defile. 
Uh, in fact, one of the most helpful explanations I've ever heard is that if you, if you can imagine this, uh, the sanctuary is the house of God. So I want you to imagine your house, wherever you live. You live, may live in a house or a condo or whatever. I want you to imagine people coming in and just dumping their trash in your place. How would that, what would you do? Well, I wouldn't be super happy about that. I would imagine it'd be at least like a, um, hello. What is this? The dump? That's ultimately what sin does. It's like, it's like we're vandalizing is one of the ways I've heard it explained. It's like throwing trash in God's house. It's like, imagine taking the you know, leftover meatloaf from last week. You go, Lord. Sin is always against God, right? And it pollutes the world. So what happens when there's, there's sin damages and there's sin defilement? Can God be in that space as it is? But he wants to be. He wants to be. Um, there's a movie called Arrival. Has anybody ever watched this movie before? A couple of us. Terrific film. I'm going to try not to ruin it because this one's not 30 years old. But it's, it's a good one. And essentially, in like, I think it's 12 different places in the world. I want you to imagine this for a second. These, I don't know, mile-long, uh, it's like a space, this, is, this actually doesn't sound as cool as it is in the movie. It's like these spaceships land on Earth. But they're cool looking. They're not like, they're not stupid looking. They look like, I don't know. They look like, like a pod. Thank you. So this is, gosh. Tom, if you're hearing this, I promise, it's not always going to be like this. So there's, imagine these 12 pods that land in like Rio and New York and Los Angeles and Temecula, okay? Because we're, we're on the map now. Lisa from Temecula has officially put us on the map. just want you guys to know that. If you don't know, Google it later. So imagine there's a pod that's hanging over Margarita Middle School, and we have no idea what it is. So the whole movie is like, what are these things, and what do they want? So there's an arrival here on Earth. And what it is, is as you watch the movie, I don't think this is giving away too much because it's in the trailer, I think, is that there's beings from another dimension. Is that a fair way to put it? They're not from here. They're from somewhere else that have come to give us a great gift. But humanity blows it. And we end up killing one of them. And so they lift off far away. But they're committed to giving this gift to humanity. So they don't just leave, but they're no longer in, in like close proximity. And so again, I want you to think about this idea of close proximity. Like God wants to dwell with us but because of human violence and bloodshed, the defilement of sin, and the damages of sin, something has to change. Quote number one, purification cleanses the defilement of sin. Ransom pays the debt for it. So when I lay my hands on that sacrifice, when that sacrifice dies in my place, I'm saying it's a, it's a moment of surrender to say, Lord, I know I owe you a sin debt. I know there's defilement that's caused because of me and I'm a part of the human race. 
but I yield and I surrender to you. And I trust that through this sacrifice, you receive me. That's what they did in those days. And it was a reversal of the expulsion from the garden. If you could throw up image number two, I want you guys to see how this works. So this right here is the Holy of Holies. This is the hot spot of God's presence on earth. It's his throne room. And what's fascinating is the high priest, there's cherubim right there. What does that make you think of? So it's like, welcome back. You guys ever watch Welcome Back, Cotter? Welcome back. Anybody? Okay, three of us. Whatever. There's, there's these cherubim here, and it's like, come back. Come back. God is beckoning humanity to come back. There's a high priest goes through those doors. It's like they're going back to Eden. Here's the tree of life, the menorah. And here in the Holy of Holies is God's presence, his hot spot. So God's desire isn't for an exile. It's not for a kid sitting alone, completely unaware of where their value or worth comes from or why they're here on this earth. He wants us where he is. And that's what the sacrifices accomplished. You couldn't just waltz in there. You had to come with blood and once a year. There's a sacrifice that atoned for sin. If we could go over uh, Marshall to uh, Hebrews 8, 1 to 12, all of this is just pointing forward to a deeper reality. The main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest This is Jesus, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary. We've been talking about the sanctuary this whole time, but we've been talking about the earthly sanctuary. But where did Moses get his instruction from on the sanctuary? God, yes. And it was a representation of the true sanctuary in heaven. The minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not by man. So not by Moses. This is the true sanctuary. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. It was necessary for this priest, Jesus, to also have something to offer. Verse 4. If he were here on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. So this is not, Jesus isn't coming as a Levitical priest. He wasn't a part of the tribe of Levi. He was a part of the tribe of Judah. So all that we just talked about, these sacrifices were pointing forward to this. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So this is, Moses was bringing a revelation of the real thing. Jesus, though, has obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, see, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. So all the stuff with the Levites, the sacrifices of animals, it couldn't accomplish the job. But there's a, a final sacrifice that's come. Because we, we could never cleanse ourselves. We, could, we couldn't do it. We needed new hearts, and that's what this explains. 
with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Again, they were rescued, ransomed out of Egypt. God took them out. But it says, I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. So here's the problem with the old. Here's the problem with the Levitical priesthood and sacrifices of animals. They never got to the heart. We know that because the people of Israel, were they faithful or unfaithful? If you've read the story over and over again, they show themselves to be unfaithful. And they're a stand-in for, for humanity, by the way. This isn't like an Israel bash. This is like a human bash. I'm an equal opportunity basher. And I'm including myself in this. No human would be able to continue in the covenant save for one. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each, and each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least to the greatest, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. This atonement, this purification, this ransom, our sin debt has been paid for. Sin's defilement has been cleansed. Sin's dominion has collapsed. That's what atonement accomplishes. But it's Jesus' sacrifice, not the blood of bulls and goats. It couldn't do it. And so what does that produce? Real quick, Romans 5.1. Romans 5.1. Paul is riffing on all this in Romans. If you are a, a Romans fan, if you've never read the, the letter to the Romans, it's really complicated. And I remember being kind of discouraged from reading it when I was a new Christian. And now I'm going back to read it. And it is complex, but it's so rich. And Paul is riffing on everything we've talked about today when he talks about Jesus being the sacrifice of atonement. And here's the end result of all that. We have been declared righteous by faith for all who believe in Jesus, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other translations, it says that we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So here's the big idea for today. If you're taking notes, write this down. Alienation becomes access through the atonement. Our alienation from God becomes access to him through the atonement of Jesus. So, we're gonna, we're gonna wrap up. I'm gonna invite you guys, the band to come up. I'm gonna invite you guys to stand, actually. Okay. How you guys doing? Okay. Here's the good news. Here's the good news. I took some notes. There's obviously plenty of bad news for humanity. But here's the good news. This is a quote that you guys don't have back there. God accepts the death of a blameless representative on behalf of sinful people. God accepts the death of a blameless representative on behalf of sinful people. 
So if you really get like how serious the problem is, sin causes debt and defilement, sin causes damages that we owe God and a cleansing that we can never accomplish on our own, then I think we'll, we'll, we'll rejoice because Jesus has paid that ransom. He has cleansed. He went in to the, the heavenly sanctuary, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own. And what that blood does, and this is, just, just to be clear, this is weird for us, 21st century Westerners, that blood represented the life of a blameless sacrifice, and they would put it on these different materials in the sanctuary to cleanse it. So what Jesus has done is he has gone into the holy of holies in heaven, if you will, and cleansed it with his own blood, which means there's nothing that needs to keep you from coming to him, ever. Nothing at all. There's purification for sin, there's cleansing. Jesus didn't hold on to his life, but he gave it for you. One of the fascinating things I learned about the atonement as I was studying this week is that it talks about God giving these sacrifices to the people. So instead of God being like this angry deity that demands, demands like his pound of flesh, it's like, I gave you this sacrifice because I want you. I want to be with you. He wants, like the movie Arrival, he doesn't just want to be up here, he wants to be down here with us, giving us a gift, which is dwelling with him and him dwelling with us. And if you know the story of the Bible, that's where this whole thing is going. One day, heaven will come down to earth and the rule and the reign of God will encompass the entire world. And so now, our part is now we offer our lives to him because he's offered everything to us. Okay, the surrender of one's life is the way to true life. The surrender of one's life to others is the way to true life, really. 1 John 4, 9 to 11 says this, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent, or he gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's literally what we've been talking about this entire morning. What's the natural, logical response to this? Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. So rather than holding onto our lives tightly and being self-protective and figuring out things on our own and doing things the way we've always done them and figure, you know, it's literally an offering of you gave, me, you gave your life for me, I give my life for you. And the way that it works out is in relationships. It's in sacrifice. And I just want you guys to know that in this community, even though, like I mentioned earlier, I think this is a dangerous place in a lot of ways because of how comfortable we can be and how much we have and how life can just be, we can be lulled into a sense of sleepiness spiritually because everything is manicured and nice and pristine. It's a lot harder when you're somewhere that's really broken to be aware of these things. But I just want you guys to know, like when I look around this room, I see people who are sacrificing significantly. I see people in whom Jesus is working. I see people whose lives are becoming more and more a living sacrifice. And so I just want to invite you to consider, is there, some, is there an element of my life that is not yet offered up to God? Any part of your life. It could be literally like you holding on to sin. You could be holding on to shame. 
You could be holding on to all kinds of stuff. You could be holding on to resentment. But the truest thing about us is like, if he gave it all for us, how could I also not offer my life to him? Every aspect of it. So I'm gonna pray for us. And we're gonna go into a time of singing. I'm gonna ask the prayer team to make their way over to the side of the room. If anything that I said this morning, or if God is stirring up anything in you, I wanna invite you to go get prayer. There's kind of two sacrifices that you can bring this morning. Three. One, you can offer him sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise for all that he's done, for being your ransom in your sacrifice. Two, you could acknowledge your own need and go receive prayer and care and ministry from these precious people who love you and want to minister to you. And the third sacrifice I want to put in front of you is that there could be people in this room that God is calling you to move up, move towards. It could literally be a person, uh, he could give you something, a scripture, a thought, an idea for them. Maybe there's people in this room that you just need to be reconciled to, for the relationship is not right. And the sacrifice that you bring today is the sacrifice of humility and forgiveness or a desire to be forgiven. Whatever it is for you, I want to invite you. Don't spectate today. Bring your life as an offering, your voice, your needs, or your ministry. So Father, we thank you and we love you and we bless you. And we're grateful to you for your son who was a sacrifice of atonement for us. And through him, sin has been derailed. Sin has been dethroned. And I thank you that now, through the sacrifice of his own life, we have been set apart for service. May we serve you with these offerings of praise and thanksgiving. May you meet us as we bring our needs to you through prayer and ministry. And may you empower us to minister to each other as your children. We love you and we thank you in your name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to hand it off to the guys. Thanks, guys.